The information shared as part of this carbon series is general in nature. We're asking questions of Professor Richard Eckhart, and he's providing his insights from his expertise. Humans of Agriculture doesn't endorse any of his views. As part of this, they're really designed to just be conversation starters. And if you want to get more information, please reach out to specialists and experts in the carbon space. G'day and welcome to this special series of the In The Know, On The Go podcast, created by Humans of Agriculture. I'm your host, Ollie Lalee, joined by my co-host, Sam Noon. Hey, Sam. Hi. This series is designed to get you across the things that matter in Aussie agribusiness in ways which are just bloody well easy to understand. Carbon shortcuts, an introduction to all things carbon in Aussie agriculture, and golly, this series does have a few curly ones and a whole lot of really exciting discussion around what is happening in this carbon space and where are we heading. Sam, what can we expect in episode one? So we give a very quick overview of the carbon space, covering the baseline years, Australia's emission goals, can livestock ever be carbon neutral, big question, the role of ag in mitigating carbon emissions, as well as some of the ways that you can participate in the market. So a lot to unpack. And sitting across the desk from us, we've got Professor Richard Eckard, who's arguably one of the greatest minds at the cross-section of climate and agriculture. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> Richard, you're a Professor of Sustainable Agriculture at the University of Melbourne and Director of the Primary Industries Climate Challenges Centre, a research centre addressing the impacts of a changing climate on agriculture. You developed the first greenhouse gas accounting tools for agriculture with research and expertise provided the science basis for the development of six carbon offset methods in Australia. And I'm sure what we might have to do is unpack your journey in a separate chat. But here, we're here to chat about and take people on a bit of a learning journey. And I'll think of it as the elevator. We're just about to walk in the doors on the ground floor, get a bit of an understanding of the carbon market and how this space has eventuated into what it is. The conversation seems like it has moved pretty quickly. But Richard, firstly, a big question for you, which we like to ask everyone is, how are you today? Yeah, good today. A bit of a croaky voice, having travelled with people in a car with two viruses, not just one. But uh, that's life that we live nowadays and uh, the challenges. So, yeah, happy to be with you, Ollie and Samantha. Let's fire away with the carbon farming. I guess if we start at a high level, we know Australia has committed to net zero by 2050 and reducing emissions by 43% below 2005 levels by 2030. So keen to hear your thoughts on how Australia is actually stacking up with the rest of the world in regards to our emission reductions and, and reaching that goal by 2050. Yeah, look, you're obviously talking about a goal at a national level that goes across all sectors. Now, the problem we've had historically is that Australia has just been increasing in all sectors except for the livestock sector. Um, that's the only sector that's been flatlined and has technically, in terms of sheep, gone down in emissions while everything else has gone up over the last 20 years and continues to increase. So we need to turn that around in the big end of town. The reason why the livestock sector has flatlined or gone down in sheep is just animal numbers. Methane is a function of animal numbers. It's just a multiplier on animal numbers at a macro level. So to be fair, coal-fired power and diesel use is where the big emissions are. That's where more than 65% of Australia's emissions lie. That's going to have to transform pretty rapidly. If anything, agriculture is probably seeing a flatlining in its emissions, unfortunately, because of the physical effects of climate change. As in, if you look at Nabe's report recently saying most industries have actually flatlined in productivity growth 
as a result of about a 20% challenge that climate change has given them. So nitrogen use has tailed off, animal number growth has slowed down as a result of that. So before we take the moral high ground saying agriculture has made its contribution to emission reduction, it actually wasn't intended. It's probably a combination of droughts and international market challenges. One thing I'm, I'm keen to explore, Richard, and starting quite high up and looking at a, at a global scale, even outside of agriculture, but the choice around baseline years. We know agriculture has used its own baseline years. Like, How have countries and in Australia actually set up these baseline years across the national forum, but then also at an industry level as well? Yeah, so the Kyoto Protocol started with 1990 as everybody's baseline year. That wasn't particularly fair because they knew the Berlin Wall came down halfway through and they inherited dirty industry in East Berlin that they were able to clean up. Uh, So Europe was very happy with the 1990 baseline year. It didn't suit Australia. The Paris Agreement changed all of that. It basically said, bottom-up offering, you offer us what you can as a country. So what you'll see in the Paris Agreements, what we call nationally determined contributions, was each country coming to Paris with their own baseline year and their own target year, usually Some had 1990, some had 2000 as their baseline year. Australia picked 2000. And sometimes when you look at these baseline years, they're just about mathematics. I don't want to sound skeptical, but if you think of the original Australian target of 5% reduction emissions by a certain date from a certain date, and then we came out with this new 25 to 27% by 2030 under the previous government, mathematically they were the same thing. They were the same straight line. We just changed the starting point and the end point to make it sound bigger. So in terms of baseline years, every country is picking their own. Typically now what we're seeing is they picking it either as a 1990 or 2000 baseline year and saying we'll work from that. And then most targets are saying we'll achieve something by 2030 and another thing by 2050, mostly net zero by 2050. So there's a lot of gaming that goes in on baseline years and choice of baseline years and don't believe Australia's any different to anyone else than that. Richard, following on from that, just in terms of what Ollie was um, speaking about in the beginning around the environmental claims that are in market right now and that it can be, you know, a little bit confusing for consumers to differentiate. Can you give us a top line, explain to listeners the fundamental difference between net zero and carbon neutral? At a very simplistic level, they're the same thing. But there are nuances that are emerging. So the United Nations would define net zero. The subtlety lies in which one you do first. Because basically the same definition exists where you try to reduce greenhouse gas emissions as much as possible, and then you achieve a zero final figure by taking off carbon storage, sequestration in soils and trees. So that's how you end up with a net zero or a carbon neutral balance. The difference lies in the original intention by the, by the international community in defining net zero was you do everything you can in your power to reduce emissions first, and then only when you can't reduce them any further, then you're allowed to bring in offsets to get to zero. Whereas if you take some of the industry definitions right now of carbon neutral, like some farms claiming to be carbon neutral, some supply chains claiming to be carbon neutral, They've done nothing about emissions. They have completely ignored the emissions. They've just bought offsets. So they've gone about it in the wrong way around. So their definition of carbon neutral doesn't match the net zero definition, which is do everything to get emissions down first, and then only the impossible residue you offset. 
So if you buy a carbon neutral steak, for example, it's only the 200 grams on your plate that is actually carbon neutral, where offsets have been bought against that 200 grams. It's not the entire production system, the breeder herd that was needed behind the scenes to produce that steer that then was cut up and delivered to your plate. All of those emissions are not covered. So there's two issues you can see in there. One is we're just using offsets first, which isn't the intention. And the second one is you're not covering the entire system required to deliver the product. We're claiming this 200-gram piece of steak is carbon neutral. What about other language that we might see in the supermarket or associated with other brands like climate neutral or climate positive in regards to climate neutral, perhaps New Zealand as an example that you could speak to? So carbon neutral versus climate neutral is a fairly big difference. As in carbon neutral, it's an unfortunate term for the agricultural industries because we inherited that carbon neutrality from the fossil fuel industries where the desire is no more carbon emissions. In agriculture, we want more carbon because we're in the carbon game. We photosynthesize carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into plants and animals. So it's kind of the wrong term for agriculture, but let's go with it for now. Carbon neutral, we just talked about, is reducing your emissions down to close to zero and then offsetting the balance to get to a zero final result. Climate neutral assumes that short-lived gases like methane don't have to be zero to achieve the same level of ambition of reducing warming. So the New Zealand target is a good example where they've said, well, if we steadily reduce methane from cows in New Zealand by 47% by 2050, methane will no longer be warming the atmosphere any more than it is today. Which, if you think about it, if you stop all carbon dioxide emissions and carbon dioxide hangs around for 400 years, well, it's the same thing. Net zero carbon dioxide emissions still mean we've got the same warming from carbon dioxide for 400 years. A 47% decrease in methane means no more warming from methane for the next 400 years. So the outcome is the same, but it's climate neutral, not carbon neutral, if that makes sense. It's well understood. If you stopped all methane today, in 12 years' time, there'd be no methane left in the atmosphere. So it's overachieved its ambition. If you stopped all CO2 today, you're stuck with 450 parts million for the next 400 years. So it's still warming in 400 years' time. So the New Zealand target is trying to set the agenda for methane doesn't have to be zero like long-lived gases do to achieve the same ambition of outcome. Focusing in on the agriculture sector, we know now every part across society is having to move towards setting their own ambitions and targets. If we focus in on the red meat sector, Meat and Livestock Australia has said it that red meat will be carbon neutral by 2030. It's a really interesting part because, one, I don't understand how unless key actions are happening at the grassroots, how a sector can be carbon neutral. And so that's something I'm really excited to explore as part of the conversation. But we touched a little bit on, or you touched on earlier, that lamb is already carbon neutral because of the lower stocking numbers now in Australia. Climate neutral. Climate neutral, apologies. (laughs) So how have they set the baseline year for livestock? And what are farms needing to do to actually accelerate the uptake of climate neutral practices on farm? Yeah, so look, you could argue the sheep industry, because of declining animal numbers, is on that trajectory towards a 47% decrease by 2050, which would be your climate neutral target for methane. Unfortunately, dairy is kind of flatlined, beef is still going up, so on balance, the livestock industries are not climate neutral, it's just one sector because of declining animal numbers. In terms of CN30, 
you've got to remember that the challenge for different industries is vastly different. Take the viticulture industry, winemaking, where they generally go from the vineyard through to the bottle. 95% of the emissions in a bottle of wine is about the glass and the cleaning of the glass and the energy use. So you could argue viticulture going on to renewable energy and using electricity from renewable sources, there's not much emissions left to offset to achieve a neutral bottle of wine. Take the almond industry. Negligible emissions from the soils in the almond industry, lots of carbon stored in almond trees, are they already carbon positive? The poultry industry, where all the emissions are beyond the house, they're from manure management. So we know you either wet it up and generate methane or you would dry it down and sell pelletized fertilizer. So their challenge is not big. Now you go to cattle in the Kimberley where we don't even know where they are, let alone how many they are, and you've got a vastly different challenge. So unless we can come up with a perpetually low methane animal, ruminant animal, achieving carbon neutrality can't be done with offsets. We've had a couple of farms where they have achieved carbon neutrality by planting trees. 23% of the farm down to trees bought them five years of carbon neutrality at a high stocking rate. It's kind of sent us a really clear message. You can't just plant trees and get out of the problem by offsetting. So that idea of let's offset first before we reduce emissions is already showing to be a flawed strategy. Can the livestock industries ever be carbon neutral? Probably only if we come up with a methane-free animal or an animal that is at least 80% less methane. Now, there's a bunch of dietary supplements coming through on the market that we can see, but you've got to remember that they deal with the confinement industry only. So a supplement, by definition, has to be present at all times in the rumen of the animal, everywhere where methane is being generated in the rumen of the animal, for it to be effective. The less you get it in less frequently, the less effective it is, and then you get cattle in the Kimberley, who never see the supplement. So the challenge is not small. It is not a small challenge at all. You've touched on quite a few industries, and if we hone in on livestock particularly, which definitely, you know, has been labelled as, you know, climate culprits. But I guess as the carbon market has continued to mature, everyone seems to be looking to ag to decarbonise the nation. So curious to unpack this a little bit further in terms of where you believe the responsibilities lie and what role agriculture will play, say, compared with corporates and the big emitters going into the future. Yeah, look, a very real question, a very live question. There is this expectation, particularly with the upgrade of the safeguard mechanism, there's the assumption that if you put a declining baseline or you basically require the top end of town to slowly reduce their emissions by something like 6% per year, they'll just come and buy offsets from agriculture. But I'd point you to the Net Zero Australia plan that the University of Melbourne and University of Queensland have just published. It's online, you can access it. And we were involved in the agriculture and land management section. And what that told us abundantly clearly is that for agriculture to meet its own supply chain targets, they can't afford to sell any offsets to anyone else. Agriculture in its own right is going to struggle to meet its own supply chain targets by 2030 through to 2050. This notion that there are all these surplus offsets to suddenly provide to the industrial sector is quite fanciful. I did a quick calculation the other day where I took all the emissions from the northwest mining industry in Western Australia, 167 million tonnes per year of CO2 emissions, and then looked at what if we had to plant trees in all wheatland in Western Australia, all 4.5 million hectares of wheat in Western Australia was down to trees to offset them. You'd get 50% of your emissions for about 12 years. 
So that would mean that the entire Western Australian wheat industry is now in the trees. It would buy half of the emission reduction just of the Northwest mining industry, and you'd only buy that for about 10 years, 12 years. So the notion that you can just plant trees and get offsets for the industrial sector is also fanciful. So I guess where I'm coming back to is we know all the multinational supply chain companies, agricultural supply chain companies have set targets. JBS, Coles, Woolworths, Coles, Cargill, they've all set targets that start in 2030. And for the average farmer to reach that target, we will need all our own carbon for ourselves. The idea that there's suddenly this gold mine of selling carbon out of stocks of soil and trees for short-term gain will come back to bite us. That's a really interesting point that you lead us into a whole other conversation, Ollie. Just a small one to unpack. You referenced methane-free animal earlier. So what role will genetics play in this in the future and achieving that potentially? Yeah, so genetics is going to be an important part of the plank. It's not the only plank. And you've got to remember, if we breed animals for residual methane production, which is a more feed conversion efficient animal that produces less methane and is more efficient, the research would say we get about a 1% gain per year. But you've got to remember it's cumulative and permanent. So the challenge there is you would never get a carbon offset method up available for 1% gain. It's just never going to pay a farmer to do that. That'll be cents per hectare rather than dollars per hectare even. But if you realize that after 10 years, we've got a 10% permanent reduction in methane that doesn't require daily supplements, that doesn't require a vaccination or some recurring cost to the producer then it's worth having as part of the strategy. But you've got to remember that that's only 10% after 10 years. So we very clearly need other strategies. Think about diet supplements. You can't feed half the ruminants in Australia on a dietary supplement. It's just not practical. So that's really only dealing with the confinement industry and maybe the dairy industry. So we really do need another technology like what we call early life programming to complement breeding genetics, where we're actually just training the rumen not to produce methane. It's a bit like you on my gut microflora that are a product of our upbringing. It's the same in the ruminant. So you can actually use these supplements to create a low methane cow that then produces a low methane calf, and then that stays perpetually low methane. So that's a really big focus of attention in research right now. How much research has been done on that across the globe? The research on breeding is quite extensive. There's lots of research, particularly in New Zealand. And then in Australia, the University of New England group have done a fair bit. Ben Hayes has done a fair bit. So we know what gene markers we're looking for. We know the progress we can make there. Early life programming, there's probably only about five papers indirectly. And then one really important paper by Sarah Meal that working with the French government at the time demonstrated that you could feed a product like Bovier or 3NOP to cows and calves and result in calves being perpetually low methane or at least low methane for as long as they measured them. That has really raised the prospect for all of us that this is where we need to go in the future for the more remote grazing industries. But also, maybe Australia can help the cattle in Africa and India be low methane through this technology. I was going to ask on that, Richard, just because you've mentioned New Zealand a couple of times, but when it comes to, I guess, the global carbon space and decarbonisation of the agriculture sector, who are the countries that are leading the way? And to preface that question, Australia only had national targets as of the end of 2022. So is Australia as good as what we say and portray we are at a global stage? Look, there's no doubt that governments have a big influence here. 
And so we went through a period where there was a lot of investment in research. There were national research programs on methane and soil biology and nitrous oxide and soil carbon. And then it all died. And those researchers went elsewhere. We're trying to rebuild that capacity now. And a lot of those senior researchers have retired. So we're struggling to come back up to speed. In the meantime, Others that were in the ditch have now come out, like the United States, where they're showing themselves to be pretty strong in this area. But the point you raise is we're actually not alone. So what we've got to avoid is what I call stamp collecting research. Someone in California did this research on this product and found X, so we've got to do it here and under same conditions and find Y. That's not pushing us forward. That's just stamp collecting. It's just repeating someone else's idea. There's not enough time for us to mess around with stamp collecting. Why I mention that is because I sit on a panel to the European Union where we've approved nine to 12 country projects across the whole EU in areas like seaweed, in areas like dietary supplements, in areas of methane reduction. So the investment just in the EU is massive. Then you've got Canada with an extensive program, you've got the United States with an extensive program, you've got Embrapa in Brazil with a big program on research. You've got an International Livestock Research Institute. I have two students in Nairobi right now measuring methane from sheep and cattle, doing research on what tropical foragers can do. And then you've got New Zealand and Australia. So we're not alone in the problem. We're all facing the problem. And you'd almost say if all of that research doesn't achieve an outcome by 2030, then a zero methane animal just simply isn't possible. Going back to the farmer and the carbon market and the way in which they may participate in the carbon market. Can a farmer who sells their carbon claim to be carbon neutral? It's a really vital question, that, and one that a lot of people don't understand, is that if you generate a carbon credit from your property and you sell it, you no longer own it. It might physically sit in your soil. The carbon might sit in your trees, but you don't own it. It's gone. It'll never come back. It now belongs to the person that bought your carbon credit or the entity that bought that because they will use that carbon credit to offset their emissions and demonstrate that their business is low carbon. So yours will never be low carbon again. Now, this is where I differentiate between soil and tree carbon, which we call sequestration, storing carbon, which by definition is a finite bank. You can only build soil carbon up to a certain point and you can't keep building it indefinitely. Nothing in nature works like that. You can't grow a tree indefinitely. It'll mature and it'll tail off in how much carbon it can store. So that's a finite resource. And if you keep selling out of that, you've sold out of your bank account for the future and you're not going to get that back. So in 2030, when you need to balance off your emissions with sequestration, it's all gone. Emissions avoidance is quite different. If you send your animals to market at 18 months instead of 36 months, that's 18 months of methane they just didn't produce. You could sell that on a daily basis or on an annual basis to a carbon market almost with impunity because there's no connection between today's methane and methane in 18 months' time. So you can keep selling it up until 2030, and then when the supply chain says you need to show low production, you can just not sell it um, and keep that emission reduction towards your farm profile. So, So you can see that they are actually quite different products and with different risk profiles. And the banks are starting to realize that these are different risk profiles, that a lot of sequestration is heavily rainfall-dependent and bushfire-dependent. And methane reduction, well, if it didn't happen, it didn't happen. So the security of that as an investment is quite good. So we need to realize that there's different opportunities here. Engaging in carbon markets in the livestock industries, I would say be careful of the selling carbon sequestration. Keep it for yourself, inset it against your future liability, 
But if you can sell your animals early and sell that as methane, or you can burn savannah and sell that as methane reduction, go for it. And I just have kind of one question, and it's around this carbon space. It seems like it's picked up a lot of momentum in the last few years. You obviously specialise in it and have for quite some time. But when did this conversation around carbon and decarbonisation start, and why has it accelerated so much in, say, the past decade? Yeah, I would say it's been around for more than 20 years, but it's really only been popularized through the Paris Climate Agreement. So the Paris Climate Agreement was the first time where all the countries participating signed up to achieve net zero by 2050 or more likely to keep the planet below 1.5 degrees, which implied net zero by 2050. That's what really set us on the course to take it seriously. And I would say even since then, we've seen governments be quite tidy with their politics because it all becomes political. But where agriculture plays is in the global supply chain, and we've seen the global supply chain all set targets. All the major multinationals now have emission reduction targets starting in 2030. Why is that a problem? Well, it's probably not a problem for the United States farmers because very few of them export, whereas in Australia, 70% of our produce is exported. And so it's a very live issue for us. We've worked on things like the canola plan, where Western Australian canola can demonstrate to the EU that it is lower emissions than EU canola. So that's priority access into a market that was worth at the time, I think, $750 million to the Western Australian canola industry because we had done the research in Western Australia and proven that their emissions were lower than the EU factors being used, priority access. Think about a 2030 world when a global wheat buyer is looking around the global stage saying, where do we buy the lowest emissions wheat in the world to meet our target? Because they can go to wetter countries in Europe where they use more nitrogen and it's double the emissions of Western Australia. And so we find a situation emerging where we might actually become preferential in the queue towards lower emissions. You think about a company that's set a target for low emissions. We want 30% less emissions in our portfolio. If they go and buy everyone that's producing emissions as business as usual, they've got to buy that all as carbon credits to offset. So it is in their interest financially to buy the lowest emission sources first to meet their annual quota, and then that costs them less in carbon credits to meet their stated target. That'll happen at the local supermarket level, and it'll happen at the global buying stage level. So we can see it already playing out in, if you're a supermarket buying low emissions product, why would you buy the highest emitting farm? You'd buy the lowest emitting farms first, and then make up the difference with carbon credits, because if you buy the double emitting farm, it's double the amount of carbon credits you've got to buy to get your target. So that happens at the local purchasing level right through to the global buying level. Well, that's a wrap on episode one. We've covered a little bit about baseline years, Australia's emission goals. That big question, can livestock ever be carbon neutral? We'd love to know your thoughts on what we chatted about today. Episode two drops next week. If you enjoyed this one, please share it with a friend, follow and subscribe. Don't miss one of these episodes. See you next week.